50 years ago, that song was number one. That's kind of how I fell on it because I hear it all the time still. 50 years ago, um, a mighty long time. We'll get to that in just a second. Uh, someone brought up a really interesting, uh, sent us a quick note about climate change again. I always love this one because you hear people like, oh, there are dissenting views on climate change. So most recently, 99.9% of peer-reviewed scientific papers agree that climate change is mainly caused by humans. 99.9%. That of 88,125 climate-related studies, 88,125 climate-related studies. They looked at 3,000 studies between uh, over the last decade and found three that were somewhat skeptical. So this whole idea there's some sort of equivalence. Listen, we don't have to agree on how it's fought. We don't have to agree on how serious it is. We don't have to agree on a lot of things. But we're not going to talk about false equivalence on this show. 99.9%. Just remember that. They can let you go back to YouTube now. Um, love Brandy, You're a Fine Girl. It is one of those songs that has stood the test of time. I remember hearing it for the first time in the 70s on the radio, hearing it again in the 80s. It's been remarkable. Uh, and it stuck around. It's part of popular culture. It was number one here, number one in the US, number one in Canada as well, a million seller in the early 70s. And then because of a revival of yacht rock, so to speak, um, it sort of stuck around in popular culture. The Red Hot Chili Peppers do a live version of it, believe it or not. Uh, Kenny Chesney does a country hit that's really quite incredible. Uh, it's been in the film Lords of Dogtown, Say Anything, Charlie's Angels, a very Brady sequel, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, and even The Simpsons. Randy, you're a fine girl. What a good wife you would be. But my life, my love, and my lady is the sea. Poor Brandy. And Selma, hmm. do you think you'll ever get married? Oh, I don't know. Why? You know somebody? No. Yeah, Selma singing Brandy, You're a Fine Girl. Uh, not the greatest version of the song, clearly. Amongst others, uh, there's many other places it's been. It's fitting because the musician who wrote the song and sung lead vocals on it, Elliot Lurie, went on to have a really successful career in the movie music business, oddly enough. So it makes some sense that the song still lives on in film and so forth. Joining me now is Elliot Lurie to talk about Brandy or Fine Girl 50 years later. Uh, he was the co-lead singer, songwriter of Looking Glass and a longtime head of the music department at 20th Century Fox, also a music supervisor, independent music supervisor, worked on a ton of movies uh, like Charlie's Angels um, and Night at the Roxbury, amongst others. Thanks for your time. Welcome. You're welcome. Good to be here. 50 years. It goes by, it goes by so quickly, but um, the longevity, I, you know, I heard Brandy again the other day at the grocery store and thought of, and it's what led me to you in some ways. Does the longevity of the song surprise you? It does. I mean, it, it really does surprise me because there were songs that were far bigger hits back then that haven't hung around uh, the way Brandy has. Um, you know, of course, I'm very pleased by it. But yeah, the longevity definitely has surprised me. You must still hear it. You must still hear it when you're out. I mean, I in do. different places. Yeah. You know, I hear it and, and friends and long lost relatives, you know, text me or contact me on Facebook and say, hey, I heard you at, as you say, at the supermarket today or or, or, or you came on Sirius XM again today. Tell me a bit about, about how that song came together, because I know at the band itself, you had, you had a couple of different incarnations back in the late 60s, early 70s. You were all at Rutgers at the time uh, in New Jersey, studying New Brunswick, New Jersey. Um, and you were a huge, hugely successful sort of local college band right 
Yeah, we were we were a big band on campus. We played all the fraternity parties, the local bars. We were a cover band. We would pay, you know, play five, six sets a night and cover whatever was popular around the uh, dormitories at that time. Everything from uh, Jimi Hendrix to the Rolling Stones to uh, Poco and Buffalo Springfield. You know, we were a cover band, and then we started writing a bit. We would sneak our original songs into the set, and we were well-received enough so that people put up with those and came to, to know those as well if they followed the band around. Brandy was actually written after after we left Rutgers. We, we had uh, graduated, so we had our degrees in our back pockets, and we said, well, let's trust to make this music work, and if it doesn't, we can always go get real jobs because we did finish school. We rented an old farmhouse way out in the northwest corner of New Jersey, which is right near the Pennsylvania border. It's very beautiful and rural and streams and pine trees and all. We found this old farmhouse with three bedrooms upstairs and this big living room downstairs, and three of the four members of the band lived in the house. And we would set our equipment up in the big living room downstairs. And all week we would rehearse and write songs and make demos on old reel-to-reel tape recorders. And on the weekends, we would go out and play gigs to make the rent. And we did that for almost a year and finally hooked up with a manager who got us a record contract. That farmhouse had a connection to Harry Chapin, didn't it? Speaking of Cats in the Cradle, (laughs) that's like another big name. I think his mom owned that property. Um, wow. She wasn't living there when we rented it, but I think that we did make the rent checks out to to her, yes. Amazing. So the song, I mean, I, I gather it took quite a few different versions to get the version of the song that you wanted, and you heard some versions that you didn't like over the years as well. Yeah, what happened was we, of course, we had recorded many demos of it. Uh, so, you know, those count as recordings. We've done a few of those. But once we got signed to the label, uh, Clive Davis, who was the head of the label at the time, suggested that we go down to Memphis and have Steve Cropper produce us, Steve Cropper of Booker T and the MGs fame. We were very excited to do that. We went down there, recorded four tracks with them, one of them being Brandy, and it went very well. And we came back to New York and we sat in Clive's office and we played those versions and i think uh, everyone agreed that they sounded like very well recorded versions of a real good bar band but right. they didn't sound like a hit record and we actively wanted a, a top 40 hit record so clive then put us with a staff producer from the label and we went in with him and recorded the basic track and it came out really great oh at first he had suggested to us that um because he was an old-time staff producer at the label, he had suggested to us that he wanted studio musicians to play the track, and he just wanted us to sing on it. I'm sure it took us a lot longer to to get the track right than it would have for studio musicians, but it also, I think, when you talk about its longevity, part of why it does hold on is because it doesn't sound like a bunch of slick recording musicians. It sounds like a real band. In any case, we went through the recording process with him, and he wanted to take it way over in the pop direction. He wanted to put sound effects of a ship's bell and waves at the beginning of the record. He wanted to bring in a certain arranger who was a real sort of mainstream New York pop arranger. So we bought the that, and then we finished the record on our own, producing it with the engineer, 
then mixed it at least three or four times, and that's the final version that be, that became the hit. You you must have known it was going to be a big a good song, but no one could ever know it's going to be a big hit, especially back in those days. Um, you know, before there was like a social media up, like you could sort of watch it organically get popular. But there was one DJ who started playing it right before it was released. Yeah, what happened was, um, you know, the the record labels they may still do for all I know, but they had promotion men, and the promotion man's job was to go to the radio stations in his territory and try to get the music directors and the disc jockeys to get interested in the label's new releases and to play them. And Brandy was not the first single that we released from the album. We had released something else, primarily because Brandy was a little bit more pop than most of the things that we did. And we were concerned that it wasn't a real good um, presentation of what the band was about. So we had put out another track on the album. And it was doing nothing. I mean, it was a total stiff. Nobody played it. Nobody cared about it. And this promotion man named Robert Mandel, I'm still in touch with him. He went into a uh, radio station in Washington, D.C., and he said to the program director, have you heard this new thing that we've got looking less? And the program director said, yeah. He said, we played the record a couple of times, but nothing happened. No reaction whatsoever. It was, you know, nothing. So Robert had a test pressing of an album, test pressing is a version that they give to pre-release before the album comes out. And he, Robert said to the program director, uh, he said, well, have you heard this one? I want to play one other track from this album because I think I think this one is really the, the hit. And he played Brandy for the guy. This uh, Jackie's name was Harv Moore in Washington, D.C. And uh, he liked it a lot. So he put it on the air right then and there, played it right off the <laughs> The good the old album. days. Wow, yeah. The good old days, right. All of a sudden, the request lines lit up, you know, like a Christmas tree, as they say, and uh, people were rushing to the stores to buy the record. It wasn't available because there wasn't a single available yet. So when you asked did we know it would become a hit because there was no social media, the record company called us a week after that happened, and they said, you guys are going to have a number one million, million selling record. Oh, wow. Said, How can you possibly know that? And they said, well, we've been doing this enough to know that if it takes off in one major market like this song has, it's going to do the same all over the country, and it's going to be a smash hit. Wow. And it was, they were absolutely right. What what was it like to all of a sudden have a number one hit? Well, of course, I mean, we were thrilled. That's, that's what we were hoping for. We were delighted. We were over the moon. We kind of couldn't believe it. But at the same time, well, this is what we worked for. We got it. We're going to, you know, we're on the road now. We got it. You, I think Gilbert O'Sullivan's Alone Again Naturally was the other song. So yours is not that that's a bad song, but yours is a much, much better song to listen to 50 years later. You ended up, though, touring with some big names. I mean, you're, you're coming out of being like a, you know, essentially being a college band with some experience. And all of a sudden you're playing with Jeff Beck. I mean, it, it must have been pretty um, daunting. It was it was daunting, but it was very interesting because we had the one hit and the album didn't sell nearly as well as the single did. So we had these tours that were a lot of club dates, you know, three, four hundred, five hundred people where we could headline. But to fill in the dates in between, we would open for much bigger acts. So one night we'd be at a club with three or four hundred people who came to see Looking Glass, and the next night we'd be opening for somebody. And sometimes they were good matchups, like the Jeff Beck group wasn't wasn't a bad matchup. And uh, we did a few even with Steely Dan. Wow. Uh, we did a couple of big festivals with lots of acts. 
but sometimes the matchups weren't the greatest. They had us opening for Alice Cooper at the time <laughs> when he had the big extravagant show where he he the guillotine comes down and you know right. and the Alice Cooper fans had they didn't want to know about Brandy or Looking Glass. And we we started we're about halfway through our first song there, boo, get off the stage, we went Alice. <laughs> So it was it was an interesting experience, but we did get to play uh, Carnegie Hall, the Chef Beck. You know, toured toured a lot. Very very interesting experience. I loved it. I had never really traveled America, but I was only twenty two at the time. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and Brooklyn, New York is not America. No, it's great though. It's not America. So I really loved it because I really learned about people and places in the country that I had no experience with. And then, and then you left. You ended up in L.A. later, later in life, and had a whole other career in music that is, in many ways, people will have heard the music you either selected or made, the Lizzie McGuire song. People will be very familiar with your work, just not the way they're familiar with Brandy. Yeah, I got very lucky. After Looking Glass broke up, I did a solo album. Nothing happened with that. I was now, you know, about thirty, I guess, maybe. And no record companies wanted to sign me. Uh, you know, there's no interest. I really didn't know what I was going to do. And I was living in New York and probably hanging out with not a great crowd of people, you know, late 70s, early 80s in New York. You'd get into a lot of trouble there if you hung out with the wrong people. Right. So I said, I, I got to get out of here. I moved to L.A. And I really didn't know what I was going to do. I, I was, you know, I was going to go, you know, sell stereos at Radio Shack. And a friend of mine put me in touch with a... Uh, with someone he knew who was an agent for composers in the film industry. And this agent said to me, well, you want to try to write music for films? I said, well, I'm not trained that way. I mean, I can't compete with Joey Goldsmith and John Williams. I mean, I'm, I'm a songwriter. And he said, well, what about being a music supervisor? And I had never heard the term before. I didn't know what that was. He said to me, well, it's kind of a new role in the music uh, film business. He said, uh, and there are only about two people who are really doing it successfully so far. And he named two names. And the second name uh, was a woman whom I had worked with when I was doing my solo album in L.A. Uh, her name was Becky Shargo. And she had done Urban Cowboy and Footloose. Wow. So two of the biggest soundtracks around, right? I was back and out of the park. Yeah. So I called Becky up and I said, uh, Becky, I moved out here to L.A. I got nothing going on. Do you need any help? And she said, well, I do need help. She said, but I can't and I can't pay you because I haven't really gotten the royalties in from those big albums yet, and I'm struggling along here. I said to her, well, I'll work for you for free for a while if you'll teach me what this business is about. And I did go to work for her, learned a lot from her. She told me all about it. And then I got a call saying that 20th Century Fox was looking for a new executive to run their music department. There was a transition at the time. The guys who had run the music department in the 50s, 60s, and 70s were guys who could actually get up and conduct the orchestra if they needed a conductor. The guy who I succeeded was a legendary guy named Lionel Newman. He had actually been Marilyn Monroe's rehearsal pianist in addition to conducting the orchestra. He's also Randy Newman was, he's passed, Randy Newman's uncle, and uh, his brother was Alfred Newman, the famous uh, music composer. Right. So I got that job, and it was my first real job ever. 
You know? <laughs> That's remarkable, yeah. And suddenly I was like a senior executive at a multinational media corporation. <laughs> I didn't know what the hell I was doing for the first six months or so. But I, I, I learned. I did that for about 10 years and then did uh, independent music supervision after that for about another 10, 15 years. Amazing. You worked on some incredible movies. I mean, obviously, the one that pops off is, you know, Night at the Roxbury. I keep thinking, how many times did you have to listen to What is Love by Harry? <laughs> <laughs> I'm nodding my head, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. So you st- do you still perform? Are you still performing, Brandy, now? I still, I still write songs because I think that's what writers do. Um, I have a little studio at home. Plug, you can find them on any one of the song services. Just look under Elliot Lurie and you'll find the new songs. Well, Elliot Lurie, congratulations on 50 years of Brandy, You're a Fine Girl. It will be one of those songs that uh, our grandkids will probably be listening to as well. So thanks so much. You're very welcome. Good talking to you.